Hello, everybody. Welcome to Kafaru Cast. Uh, I'm Aaron Snyder, one of your hosts, my friend across the hall from me, Frank. What's Frank. up? And we have uh, uh, an extremely special guest, somebody I've become good friends with, an amazing archer, Rod White. Uh, Rod, thanks for coming on. Thanks, man. Love being here. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Rod, you're a gold medalist in the, was it 98 Olympics and bronze in 2002? How, what was that? Uh, 96 in uh, Atlanta and then, um, yeah, gold and bronze in uh, 2000 in Sydney. And then you shot uh, a, a competitive, I mean, and that was with a, a feet of bow or recurve, is that correct? Correct. Uh, in and I believe it's still the same. Uh, you have to shoot a recurve bow, um, no scopes, so you can use a, like I used a pin, or you can use a hoop, and uh, fingers and stabilizers and an arrow rest, and that's pretty much the scope of what you're allowed to use. Gotcha. But you shot um, tournament archery after that, and were extremely successful with the compounds. You're pretty well rounded. You shot for Matthews forever, didn't you? Yeah, yep. I shot for Matthews for boy, I'm gonna, I want to say around eight years, um, and uh, shot a lot of ASA, IBO type stuff. Um, did fairly well. Never really stood in first place in some of those, but I got really heavy into things like the ESPN Great Outdoor Games, where you're shooting moving targets and that stuff. Really, uh, super enjoyable to me, and really, really got to crank on that stuff for a while, and and uh, you know, done fairly well in those. Gotcha, cool. And then you've killed some cranker whitetails as well as other animals. Um, what uh, I was watching that some videos of you on YouTube the other day. I shouldn't say I'm watching YouTube and driving, um, but uh, what are what are I know? Right, I'm going to go to hell or at least go to jail. What? Uh, well, there was one. What? Well, what's the biggest whitetail? Give us your rundown. Pump your tires up if you can. Oh boy. Um, well, so I haven't, I really, I haven't killed much for about six years myself. I mean, I killed one a couple of days ago, but I, I've been managing properties for a long time now, um, almost six or seven years, anyhow, large properties. And that's, it's, it's certainly, I don't want to call it babysitting by any means, but it's, you know, you're, you're hunting with other people and objectives are to get their deer. So did pretty well with that, killed a, I'm going to say, uh, I think two 200 inches, pile of 180s. Um, I say a pile. I'm gonna say probably seven. I think with clients. I consider that a pile. That was, yeah. It was, <laughs> yeah. I guess I should. Yeah. I, I just saw my um, first 190 whitetail the other day. I, I had shit running down both legs, and I was 300 yards from it. I was. <laughs> it just. I mean, a a 200 inch mule deer and a, maybe a 160 whitetail to me are kind of equivalent. So seeing a you know, 190 plus whitetail, it just doesn't look normal. Well, and I think a lot of it too has to do with, you know, the access you have to those animals or the tags that you draw. Like I, you know, I live in Iowa. I moved here because of whitetails. Um, and when, you know, for me to find a giant muley when I'm elk hunting anywhere, I've just never been in a unit or I don't think I've been in a unit where I've had access to like the kind of muleys you guys talk about shooting or see. And so it's, it's it's kind of cool. We should just we should just swap sometime. I'll find a giant whitetail for you and you know, I, some muleys. I've told Frank like he I was like, dude, if I had to pick between whitetail hunting and mule deer or an elk hunting, that would be a tough choice because I have not hunted whitetail like as much as you, but I've hunted it a, a fair bit. I mean, I've shot several. Um, dude, that shit's addictive. Like somebody your heart <laughs> racing when they're coming in. Um, I mean, it's just different with an elk. Um, for me, to- totally, because uh, elk, you can make a lot of noise, generally. Um, you are making a lot of noise to get them to come in. Um, you know, you're not really patterning elk. Uh, you know, you normally we're backpack hunting where totally different with a whitetail. Not, not that I'm an expert by any means, but scent control, way more important. Elk, I don't even take a shower. I would nine days, no shower. Just follow the wind where you have to be... I mean, I've seen elk walk across tracks where I was spitting while I was chewing and not even pay attention where where I walked in on a tree stand and watched a whitetail stop in its tracks and blow out where my tracks were coming into the tree stand. Totally, totally different. Um, that and something about them coming in, um, you know, from an aerial position for me, I just, uh, it, was, it was pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, they're, both of them have some pretty, 
pretty incredible elements that make them highly desirable. And if you ask me to pick one of the two, I don't know that I could. But for me, the whitetail thing, I've kind of gone through the whole curve, which now I'm at a point in my kind of career, if you want to call it a hunting career, that's a term, um, where I really enjoy helping others and showing people how to how to communicate with deer, or how to interact with deer, and how to get really close to big whitetails like myself. Before I started doing a lot of land management, I think I think I've got I've got nine booners, two over two hundred, and I don't know probably fifty some Pope and Youngs in in various states. And traveling and learning about animals um, in those different areas, they all kind of require a little bit different tactic. Um, is really really kind of the cool fun part of it. And and once you like you go through the whole learning curve of where to where you feel like. Boy, you know, I mean, what, what do you, I think my biggest one's like 223 and some change. Like, how do you, how do you, I, I may never see or be within five miles of a deer ever of that kind of caliber again. So I started exploring other areas like elk hunting. And I think that's what's really cool about, um, you don't see a whole lot of people that do both. And so, like, I super have a ton of respect for guys who come out from elk hunting and bring in some of what they use from elk hunting, like wind, for example, like understanding how wind currents move in specific isolated areas because of drainages, draws, thermals. A lot of that I learned kind of out west and applied to the Midwest, um, even in these small drainages. So there's so much stuff that just, you know, kind of interlocks with each other. It's, it's really cool to always, I love, I mean, we haven't talked a lot, but I love talking to guys who are super into it out west and, you know, obviously have a ton, I have a ton of respect for, for what you guys do out there. So yeah, animals are. I love chasing whitetails and muleys or whatever. It's, there's just a lot to learn from every species that can help you with either one. I tell you what, I I learned is your forearm strength is uh, miraculously improving or declining, however you want to look at it, from moving stands when you have screw on tree steps. Uh, this was back in the day. I have st- <laughs> I have lone wolf. I have sticks now, but. Dude, I, I don't think I punched my clown for a week. I, I was screwing those screw steps in. I was like, Jesus, this is bullshit. This sucks. I uh, I quickly learned what a, uh, tree steps, um, you know, sticks were shortly after that because I was like, my <laughs> Lord. Because we moved stands the one time, which is one of the things uh, when I was living in Minnesota, hunting in uh, like the, the city areas and, uh, you know, north of Twin Cities, um, like Blaine, Coon Rapids area. There's big, big deer in there for being... Uh, you know, inside of the cities, but the tree stand placement in the wind is, um, you know, it, 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 you know like uh, all night long, I'm watching the wind, right? I'm watching the weather. Okay. Yep. And then, you know, if you're a poor bastard like me and you only got one or two tree stands, you're going to have to move them. And what I was amazed with, I could sneak in, pull a stand, move it, whatever, you know, 500 yards, 200 yards, whatever it was for a better wind position. Uh, and, and having bucks come out, if I was quiet enough, right by where I pulled that stand and they were bedded, um, because of the changing of the wind throughout the day, you know, I pulled the stand in a good wind, which was going to be bad, put it in a new location, um, was quiet enough to do it. And, and that little, little amount of, of movement of the stand, how key that was to get those bucks to come to you because of where they're coming from their bedding areas, all while tractors and trucks and shit were driving by. Like it was, and, and I mean, literally like I, I, that was all new to me. You know, I had come from out West and moved to the, to the twin cities and I still had like, they're like, dude, you got to wear rubber boots. And I'm like, oh, hell no, I'm not wearing rubber boots. Well, you can bet your ass I was wearing <laughs> rubber boots pretty quickly because, uh, you know, my my mountaineering type, you know, mountain hunting boots smelled horrible. And I, I the first time I saw, and it was a three and a half year old, maybe 140 inch buck lock up on my footsteps and just explode out. And I'm like, huh man, I must stink. Jesus, I got to get, and then the same thing with spray, like Ozonics and then the, the scent killer spray. And, you know, I never paid attention to that before. Like I didn't put my stuff in a descented bag or that's, it seemed to be quite a bit more important with whitetails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot more, uh, things, I guess you've got to just, you really got to take into account that are small detailed things that you get to throw on a pack out West and forget about some of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, you just got to forget about it to a point, and then you got to really remember it at another point. Like, we're, we pay attention <laughs> to the wind immensely. You know, we pay attention to the thermals, what the weather's doing, what the wind is going to be doing at what time, uh, what it predominantly does. 
And you do the same thing whitetail hunting. It's just you don't have when you're on a backpack hunt the chance to uh, clean yourself. You're just going to stink. And so you really have to pay attention to um, your, you know, your mobile elk hunting. You so you can you can reposition and and maneuver around. Uh, Where with whitetail hunting, that was, I'm I'm not like like you know, do I pee out of the stand? Do I not pee out of the stand? Uh, And (laughs) and I chew right. So then I'm like, okay, so I go in with like six different piss bottles because I drink too much water, water bottles and spitters. And then guys are like, no, just piss off the stand and then piss in the scrapes when you're leaving. And there was so much different stuff I was learning. It was it was cool. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, you've obviously got it figured out. I was watching some of your videos. You're like the the, the white tail whisperer with that grunt tube. Uh, I'm watching you do it. And I'm like, yeah, I don't <laughs> think I try that shit. <laughs> So what what is the right thing to do? Do you pee off the stand or you pee in the scrapes or you pee in a bottle? What it what do you think, Rod? Well, I used to pee in the bottle until one day I filled up a Mountain Dew bottle and <laughs> oh, accidentally no. grabbed the wrong bottle. So, but uh, tastes I, like ramen I, I water. Used to worry about well, it's, I don't think it, I, I think the odor that is most important. Um, a lot of people worry about things like I remember the old Scentlock commercials and and I shot for Scentlock at the time. It, um, or however you want to say that, hunted for them. Um, and, and for a while there, it was funny because they had commercials about, you know, there used to be one on a uh, magazine page that said that, you know, the deer can smell the gas you pumped in your car and the coffee you drank. And um, I think over time, from what m- my personal opinion is, from what I've learned, is that the, the one thing you have to be very cautious of is bacterial odor. And if it's not bacterial odor, it can put a deer on alert, which may cause investigation to the point that they find that bacterial odor. So things like, um, you know, anytime you're, you're wearing, like you're wearing rubber boots and you're, you're walking through the ground, you're disturbing that ground and you're, you're, you're uh, creating a trail. I mean, that's like how police dogs track people, you know, they catch a whiff of something in there. A lot of times they're running off a of disturbed ground. I mean, a lot of mountain lion guys who correct me by all means, um, cause they totally have my respect, but, they um those animals pick up little things and then it's it's like you and i walk into a room and smell spaghetti sauce we just smell spaghetti sauce that immediately a deer starts to think break it apart and sniff around and oh there's oregano in there and salt in there and pepper in there and onion in there and tomato in there and it's just a whole nother level so i or copenhagen in there in my case which is bad (laughs) (laughs) well and if they've never had a bad experience with it why why would it bother them i mean if, if they were scared of the smell of diesel fuel my gosh man deer would never stop running around farms because there's tractors everywhere <laughs> so i I've, I've 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 done little experiments and i can't see where um it, it's it's been a problem i mean i now i just see right out of the sand and only think about it and i've had really high-end bucks walk right by it and kind of pick their nose up at it and then keep going too so I don't know what matters. <laughs> That's what I was told no. by a scientist was P is P after like a very short period of time. Um, yep. And, you know, like maybe when it first pops out, it, it, it's not. But like within a, a very short period of time, um, whatever was common or whatever you want to call it with a human is is now gone. And it just smells like piss to a deer, whether it's from a deer or whatever. So I don't know how much true that is. I do know I've pissed in scrapes and watched a buck just go ape shit on that scrape from the tree stand. And, you know, whether that's a fluke or not, um, I just haven't done it enough. But it was cool and it made me feel good about peeing off the tree stand. <laughs> well, it's definitely not the wor- worth the risk of uh, grabbing the wrong bottle in my backpack for me. <laughs> no kidding oh lord i bet that woke you up that's like an energy drink oh, without dude. the caffeine i think i threw up for hours from the stand it was bad <laughs> i drank my own piss once on accident just because i i uh boiled water for coffee and i was so tired in the bivy and then i poured my coffee and uh hot chocolate in there and i was like man this this tastes like piss yeah it's like jesus what kind of coffee did i get well it was my pee because um, <laughs> i peed in a water bottle that night because i didn't want to get out of the bivy oh, oh dude yeah, yeah so it happens i guess for elk and for for white <laughs> oh shit well i i wanted to kind of quiz you or frank and i wanted to kind of quiz you on um just because we get so many questions about form tuning releases all kinds of stuff like that so you know bow set up so what is for you for does your whitetail and elk hunting bow change at all does your broadhead change at all or is it the same system 
Um, it, the only thing that changes for me is I would prefer to move to mechanical when I get to whitetails. And, and, and honestly, I would probably shoot mechanical on, on elk other than I hunt Idaho a lot. Um, so by the time I get home, I usually have a giant list of things to do. It may take me a while before I get a chance to swap over broadheads, but, um, I, I, I use the, and I, I have no sponsors by the way. So none of this is commercials for anybody. <laughs> um, I just enjoy doing what I do. And so I, I'll, I'll, I like those, uh, the rages. I like those quite a bit on whitetails. I've, I've yet knock on wood to see one that I know one of those heads have gotten into a body cavity from either myself or another hunter I've been filming or, or, uh, managing ground for that. We haven't found that deer and it hasn't always been right away. <laughs> But we, that, it's always, almost always killed the deer that I can think of. I can't even think of an example where it hasn't. So to me, the lethality of, of a broadhead like that, especially if you have a marginal shot, um, is, is way off the charts on importance for me. Um, fixed blade heads, I, I've struggled with them a little bit sometimes on whitetails and really don't know why. Um, but I've, I've lost a few. Everybody loses animals if they haven't. They haven't been bow hunting long enough. And I've lost a few over the years that, I shake my head, but with expandables, I have to say honestly, the rate rate's been a lot lower, and and for most people, it's they're a lot easier to tune with. You don't, in some cases, don't even have to really mess a whole lot with tuning, especially if you're not shooting past thirty or forty yards. Gotcha. And then what what are you shooting for poundage, uh, arrow weight? I mean, what's your what's your setup right now? So now I've got um, I I love carbon bows because they're ultra light. So when I'm hunting, um, I'm usually right. Well, lately I've been using the Hoyt Defiance, um, and those for me because of the light factor. I mean, I'd, I don't even have stabilizers on them, and the reason I don't is there's for me um, carrying a you know a half a pound of water versus a half pound of stabilizers in the mountains is usually important. And then when I come to the whitetail timber. You know, sometimes I'm self-filming. By the time I get my pack all loaded up, it's pretty significant in, in weight. And so a half a pound here or there still means something, even though I'm only walking 300 yards to a tree stand sometimes, sometimes considerably longer, half a mile or more, depending on what, you know, if I'm hunting public or where I've got to go to. And so that light weight is super, super important to me. So I usually just continue to shoot that bow through the entire season. And, and I like the turbo. And so the turbo... It's so fast that, um, you know, 300, I think it's 350 feet per second, I want to say, that I can, you know, I can shoot a 500 grain arrow at 280 feet per second, which is a pretty comfortable speed for me. I, I really, I think that's a great speed. I use one pin 25 yards out to about 35 or 36, and then I've got a 40 and a 50 yard pin, so I can quickly, um, you know, just use that one pin for pretty much almost any distance I'm going to encounter a whitetail. I think I've only shot like two whitetails over 25 yards anyways. Gotcha. And what release are you shooting? Are you a wrist rocket or a hinge or a thumb button? So um, with um, hunting, I'm, I'm specifically all, almost always using a, uh, a wrist rocket of some kind. Um, the one I've got this year, I think, is a true ball fang I got picked up last year and still playing with that one. Um, you know, ultra light and simple, again, kind of bulletproof. Almost all of my stuff is like that. It's not complicated at all. Gotcha. What, um, what, what do you shoot for, for practice? Uh, well, so I don't practice a ton with my hunting setup. I, I wish I could say more. I encourage people to practice way more than what I do by all means with my, with my hunting setup. So, cause I shoot targets a lot. I started to chase ASAs again here in the past year or so and shoot some NFA spot tournaments. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to spend some time practicing for those. Usually I, my practice is included the day or two before a tournament, but with my hunting bow, I, Generally, once I get it set up, I like to practice with it as much as possible. So, um, for me, really, it comes down to that month of August um, before I leave for elk season is probably when I put my most amount of time in my bow, and I'll shoot two to three hours a day sometimes. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And, I mean, do you shoot for tournaments? Do you shoot a, a hinge or a thumb button? Oh, um, yeah, I shoot. A, so, for 3Ds, which is weird, I can't really explain it. Usually on spots, I'm using um, like a... Uh, Oh, I'm trying to think of the name of it. Um, a hinge style release. Um, gosh, dang it, it's from, a true ball. Like an HT? Yeah. Yeah. It's the brass, the heavy one. Gotcha. Yeah. And then I've, 
Yep. And then I've got a, um, for 3D, for whatever reason, not being able to see exactly what I'm aiming off. A lot of times I'm aiming off of shadows or contours on a target. So I'll use a, uh, um, I think it's called an insatiable. I think it is. It's a Carter yeah. thumb button. So I use them all actually. And the process to activate the shot is completely the same with all of them. It's, it's irrelevant which trigger I'm using. It's just from a functionality perspective of like for hunting, I, I don't want to ever think about, um, accidentally bumping my release and, you know, leaving it sit on the string. I want that thing on my wrist all the time. Cause I never know. I, I mean, I've climbed down out of the tree stand for silly things. Um, and I want that release on my hand cause I might need it. Even if I'm climbing down <laughs> just to get out of the tree for a few minutes during the day, just to break the monotony. Cause I do a lot of all day hunts. Gotcha. So, so, so what, Go super ahead. simple, super was, tough. This is kind of jumping around a bit, but when did Rod? When did you decide that you were shooting good enough to? And you said, "Hey, I think I could, I can shoot really well. I can go to the Olympics. And I can win." When, what, what was the kind of the build up to that? And when did you decide I, that you were you thought you could, you know, you can go all the way and, and go to the Olympics? And kind of what was the process behind that? Well, so. <laughs> The, the reality of it is it was never like, I know there's all these cool stories about how people always dreamed about going to the Olympics, but kind of really wasn't me. I dreamed about killing deer all the time. <laughs> I grew up in Pennsylvania. So I started bow hunting when I was uh, 12 years old, which is when you were allowed to bow hunt. And Pennsylvania. you weren't allowed to hunt until then. I don't know if that's still the same. I hope not. Um, but you couldn't bow hunt until you were 12. And kind of the short version is I went out with my brother a couple times hunting and launched some arrows at deer and, I, boy, they were probably 60 yards away. We didn't have range finders back then. And I was winging at them with my 30 yard pin. Um, and <laughs> kind of got scolded a little bit for that. And, uh, basically was, you know, Hey, if you're going to continue to chase animals, you need to understand how to shoot more accurately. So we went to a local club. Um, my dad and mom dropped me off there and, uh, started shooting in a, I walked in and I was fully expecting to shoot at, you know, deer targets paper targets at the time we didn't have 3ds back then i don't think or they were pretty pretty rare to see and walked in and instead of having paper deer targets we had these round circle targets and then the bows were these recurve bows i was like oh i don't really want to shoot that thing like i brought my compound (laughs) (laughs) and uh that's not the way at the time that the folks that taught me believed that you need to learn how to shoot you need to learn how to shoot with a recurve first and how to, how to shoot with your fingers. Because at the time, releases were relatively new to the sport. I shouldn't say relatively new, but there was a large amount of people that still shot fingers, you know, even in Vegas and major tournaments. So just just went to some locals. I mean, did really well in my club and probably got a little cocky with it. Um, went to a national championship and in short, it came in like 44th out of 46 kids in my age bracket. And for whatever reason, that just snapped something in me because it was the first. I played football and baseball and other team sports, and archery was the first sport that that I was really involved with. I was like, I couldn't look to my left or to the right and blame somebody for my sudden horrible performance. <laughs> like if you're playing football and you threw the ball as a quarterback and somebody dropped the ball, well, no, dude, that's his fault. Or that guy wasn't blocking for me. Or or, or, or the guy threw the ball in a bad area. And with archery, there's no one to blame it on, dude. You shot that arrow. It's 100% your responsibility. You cut it loose. And that that thought process started sinking in right away. And then it was, I, I want to get better at this. Um, and still chasing hunting dreams, obviously, at a very young age. And I think I made my first, came back the next year, I made it a goal, told my dad I want to be in the top 10, no matter what. Next year, that's my goal, I'm going to be in the top 10 in my age division. And I came back the next year, and I came in, third i think and then got invited to a junior world championship in italy and i got second there and then made my first men's team at the age of 15 and then just kept shooting with mostly the the goal of wanting to improve my ability to shoot for hunting as much as i wanted to improve my ability to take the responsibility of, of being having a bad shot and or having a great shot and knowing that was all me so the, taking the ownership of that is, is really what drove me to want to shoot arrow after arrow after arrow after arrow. And that eventually just naturally kind of led into that that uh, Olympic-style archery tournament, archery specifically, and wound up started picking up sponsors. Like Hoyt was my first sponsor and, and picked up PSE and eventually made it to the Games. 
Gotcha. Well, yeah, that is a little bit more probably toned down than what some people might might think because you you did extremely well. You're, you know, for and you were the youngest uh, gold medal uh, archer ever, right? Yeah, I, and I'm pretty sure that's still accurate. Yep. Gotcha. And I I can't I read that. I don't know if it was. I can't remember where I read that 3d times or I don't back when I was shooting tournaments, I read it somewhere, um, which, you know, which is crazy. And then, uh, you, when you went back, you guys, it was bronze, right? You got a bronze when you came back. Yep. Yeah. We had a bronze in uh 2000, um, as a team who, who all was on the team, um, both times. Do you remember? Uh, so the, the first time it was, uh, myself and Butch Johnson, um, and, uh, Justin Hewish. And then the second time around, it was uh, myself and Vic Wonderly and Butch Johnson. Gotcha. Uh, the weird cool. thing about that sport is, mo- man, most of those people don't hunt or they didn't hunt. So I didn't. It was a it was a weird uh, feeling to be in that environment where I, you know, I just like killing stuff. Like a squirrel run across the target range, I'm thinking about shooting it, kind of deal. If I can get away with it. We know how you feel and, there, Frank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would never. And it, <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyhow, it was a different, it was a different um, genre that I was in. So it was a weird, weird deal. And it, it never changed. Just, I mean, maybe now a bunch of those guys hunt, but I didn't quite fit in. Into yeah. the mold. No, that makes that makes sense. So shooting shooting the the recurve style bows. Did you ever do any hunting with the recurve? Nope. <laughs> well, I think you should. No, I like <laughs> it's a pain I, in the butt. I like, you, I like user friendly equipment. <laughs> man, I did it last year, and uh, man, that's a rough one. I mean, I was successful, um, and you definitely get a more accomplished feeling out of you know taking an animal with a recurve. Uh, but you also, I mean, thank God I was shooting, uh, you know, a Hoyt Buffalo that had an aluminum riser. I probably would have snapped that bastard over my knee several times because, uh, <laughs> you know, I just, you get, you know, 50 yards from, from something that's in case of like in Alberta is 55 and it was, you know, well over 200 inch deer and you can't kill it. Um, man, that's a tough, that's a tough one to swallow. Um, considering at 50 yards, I'm generally shooting groups like Copenhagen lids and now I've, you know, I'm shooting a, a group the size of a fucking washer, right? Like, I'm like, man, this <laughs> blows. But uh, definitely makes you a better hunter. But it also, uh, it's, it isn't going to happen as quick. Um, it's a bit of a pain, which I think people would be surprised that you haven't hunted with a, uh, a recurve, just obviously with the Olympic stuff. But you shoot a compound extremely well, and it's it's hard to say, oh, no, I want to be less accurate. No, no, give me that thing that <laughs> right. you know, puts me into a paper plate at 30. You know, I don't want to shoot nickels at 30. <laughs> but. well i think you know maybe be a little more appealing now that i've kind of gone through the curve of collecting a bunch of antlers to throw on the wall that you know i I could see going out and doing it but for whatever reason it's still man it seems like i put so much effort into getting as close as i can to begin with regardless and um man i don't know that's just a different different discipline i guess i just never really had a desire when i was shooting my recurve it wasn't about shooting a recurve for me it was it was that was just what I happened to be really good at and was thrown into, and all my sponsorships revolved around that in the beginning, and then they evolved into all hunting sponsorships. And I did a lot of work, like um, at Cabela's and Bass Pro and Gander Mountains. I would go and do seminars, basically in the fishing area, and teach people who were in there to fish about archery and bring them over into the hunting side of things. And somewhere in there, I just completely lost. Uh, any desire really to to chase things with a recurve, whether they're trophies on the wall or or trophies around my neck, I just I, I really enjoyed that portion of the sport to where you get to teach people and educate people and see their success. And when I had the time, I had to hunt. I was I was definitely doing my compound, and I got you know at the time was getting paid really well to do that. So it was hard to walk away from shooting a uh, a wheeled bow by by all means. I, I just never had the desire, I guess. <laughs> gotcha. What would you say, just out of you know curiosity? I mean, I, I don't know how much people you coach or help, but what would you say? That probably the number one, you know, a guy coming out of a pro shop, what the number one issue is with his his form or bow setup or whatever. Um, and it, and it, you know, if you don't coach that many people, feel free to say, "Man, I'm not sure," but um, I, I know we have our opinion. So, what do you think? 
Well, I think um, the the biggest issue that I see, um, and you know, having worked in an archery shop as a kid, I, I remember spending those night before opening days of the season where guys would come in and bring their bows in, and they're literally buying broadheads the night before and shooting them. And I mean, times have changed for for certain with that. I mean, that was a huge issue that I saw people. You'd read on the packages even back then. It would say fly, flies like a field point. Well, maybe you could make that broadhead fly like a field point, but that doesn't mean it's going to impact in the same place as a field point. So um, that was a major issue back then. And now I think um, equipment has come a long way, and education is out there all over the place. In fact, too much of it, in my opinion, at times. Um, but there are some great resources that are out there that that you can learn a lot. And I think people really do try to delve into that quite a bit themselves. So the issues that I see biggest now are people not understanding how to deal with um, the excitement and rush levels that you're going to get when you finally get an opportunity at an animal. And everything kind of comes apart then. Um, and if you learn kind of in a system where, uh, you know, I just need to put my sight in the middle of the target and squeeze the trigger, that's a, a bad path that people get started on and, and I think that's probably the biggest issue I see is they just don't learn how to shoot an arrow correctly to begin with. They, it's it's not a rifle. The lock time or the amount of time that it takes from that arrow to leave your control by the time you squeeze the trigger until it's out of your control is significantly more than that of a bullet coming out of a barrel. And because of that, you know, if, if you don't have the mindset that you're always directing your arrow to where you want it to go, to begin with, then th- there will be no correction process and a, a, a collapse will happen in your form and you'll lose what we call your, I call your line. And boy, there's all kinds of things that can go bad. And I don't think people mentally understand what's going to happen to them when that first bit of excitement comes along. If they don't have a thought process, a shot process of some sort that they go through in their head, they're going to be uh, in probably in big trouble whenever they go to cut that arrow loose. Gotcha. And then how many, I mean, throughout the course of the, I mean, you're taking a lot of people on hunts. Um, I mean, how many people throughout the course of the year are you hunting with on average? And how many of those people just fold up like a, a cheap suit and how many actually hold it together? Uh, I would say of people that I've personally, and a lot of more people I manage land for, um, you know, I don't, I, I, I'm pretty much a solo hunter myself. And now that I'm not doing land management, I'm not doing it nearly as much taking people. I enjoy taking somebody here and there, kids or first-time hunters. Um, but those people generally were kind of under my wing a little bit and being able to walk them through what's going to happen uh, to them. Like physically, there are things that are going to happen to you because of the mental state you're in where your pupils are going to dilate. You're going to see more movement. There's being more oxygen being delivered in your blood system. There's kind of physical things that we can measure that happen under extreme stress. And when those things happen, it's, it's been, I've been fortunate to be able to walk people that, hey, these things are going to happen. So this is how we need to build your shot process or come up with a shot process for you that makes sense um, to where you can, you know, repeat what you're doing in practice when the real thing happens. And percentage wise of those that I haven't been able to bring up into that system, boy, it's very high. I would say in the upper, I would say the upper 80 to 90% range, low 90%, if, if you were going to throw out a percentage of number of people that I've seen just completely lose their mud that are phenomenal target shooters, it's, it's that high. Like when I was guiding and outfitting a lot, that was I, I inconceivable to me at times to, to watch people just completely lose everything whenever they get an opportunity. Gotcha, yeah. And did you, how much did you hunt out west this year? Uh, this year I was out there for, um, I want to say 40 days, maybe anything, so, um, anything news and noteworthy happen when you're out there? Pretty standard stuff. Yeah. Grizzly bears. Um, I had my fill of them, I think this year I, I, and I'm, I, I've been around bears. I used to guide in Northern Minnesota for black bears and have no problem around black bears, but grizzlies, uh, had a couple encounters that were. They were a little bit nerve-wracking to where, yeah, holy cow, I was not expecting that. <laughs> I mean, it, that that was probably my biggest thing that I've seen this year. Was and, and weather was pretty brutal this year. I mean, thankfully, all joking aside, if, uh, if I didn't have my Kafaro gear and my Gore-Tex gear, I, I'd have been in big trouble a couple different times. Gotcha. Yeah, so, we... we um. 
we, uh, uh, for Frank, actually, not we, but Frank, he does a lot of, you know, his mule deer hunts, usually like a 10 day solo backpack in hunt. And Frank, Frank got, uh, hypoxia or uh, pulmonary, pulmonary edema. Pulmonary edema, yeah. Yeah, Frank got altitude sickness and had to come out, which was, a uh, 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 well, I wasn't there. Um, you weren't there to save me. Yeah, well, I would have at least given you moral support on the way out, <laughs> but I was traveling a ton this year. I mean, the one, the one thing I notice, it seems like most guys come out of a pro shop, or not most, it's getting better, but with like way too long of a draw length or a too long of a draw length. And I think... Um, that's also dependent upon what shops are around you. If they're good shops, generally doesn't happen. If it's a shop just trying to get a bow off the shelf, um, you know, that can be a problem. And obviously the correct, um, how to execute a, a release, whether it be a, a wrist rocket or a, a hinge style or a thumb button, how to um, operate that correctly. I, yeah, yeah, I see you guys I like that. screw it up. You can see uh, um, that in specific areas. Like if you're, if you're shooting uh, indoor shoots, for example, which are a lot of local shoots, like we're going in the indoor season. I'll see that where some shops, you can tell where some, some people have come out of specific shops because maybe that guy's had some, or gal who sets up their bow has had some extreme success with the way they shoot, which is not really probably conducive to, to the average person shooting. I mean, you can look at some great archers out there, like real wild. Like if you ask somebody, somebody asked me like who would you send someone to for help on how to shoot oh my it would not be real wild <laughs> but rio has won some incredible uh has some incredible accomplishments as an archer he just shoots so much that uh, it works really well for him i think um and you know john dudley he's got some great information out there um it, for those of you that you know want to look up some information on on how to get set up properly he's got you know it's, it's pretty standard that that philosophy that approach to shooting is it's pretty pretty textbook and will work for the majority of the people but you see where some people come out of some different areas with weight bows way too long they're set up way too long or they're set up way too heavy for them or um and and that's just a function of i guess the the retail uh archery environment a lot of there's no real no real um courses that i know that uh archery shops go through no we tried to do that with matthew somewhat and uh, really institute kind of almost like a franchise approach to where we were helping, um, wanted to help retailers kind of all conform to a similar pattern in how they were setting up their bows. And I was hired a gander to do that for Gander Mountain Stores, but the turnover was so vast in employees that you couldn't get everybody on the same page all the time. It was just, you were doing constant bow schools for them because um, they would get new employees all the time. And so it, um, the the best resources I've seen are, are resources like John's got out there at Knockon. You can go to follow him on his podcast and stuff. And um, he's got some great information. I know mean, there's some other people out there too. I know I've listened to you guys' podcast that Gritty Bowman and that Joel Turner sounds like he's got some good information. You got the clums out there that put out some information. So there's great resources now. For sure. I mean, one, one thing Joel's good at um, – He's not really a, a form of coach. He's a good brain doctor. Um, it, from what I've talked to guys, uh, you know what I mean? He's, he's definitely good with, uh, you know, getting mentally prepared um, for the shot, that type of a thing. You know, when it comes to, to form and, and mechanics, is he's not there as much where um, you get a guy like, like Dudley or yourself, you know, um, you're going to be able to talk about um, – you know, maybe, um, form and mechanics really, really well and, and maybe not dive into the brain part of it, or, or maybe you can, but everybody's got their own little special, you know, niche. It seems like, or, or, or better, uh, where they focus on better for coaching when I'm talking, talking about coaches in general. Um, you know, when I, I got a long time ago, tar got target panic and went down to the PSE factory for a shooter school. And, uh, sometimes you get lumped in, what am I trying to say here? Um, when it's a group environment, it's 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 good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But man, to really dive down deep and 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 hone everything down, especially when you start talking about just not body alignment, but your facial alignment to the string, um, what axle to axle bow or what string angle is going to fit your face or what's more comfortable for you, uh, you know, things like that. That's got to be, in my opinion, more one on one to really when you really right. start kind of digging through the weeds with stuff or, or it had been for me um or it was for me where probably because like when i was in school i never pay attention to shit anyway so it's probably like that with archery where i'm just kind of going through the motions where i got somebody standing in front <laughs> of me 
pay pay a little bit more attention. Who who was your um, like coach or mo- like most uh, key figure in archery? Would you say? So kind of just like you were saying, um, at Alexander Kirloff at PSC, which I don't I think he's still there. Um, That's who was the coach he, I was talking about. Technically, he had the most advanced knowledge of anyone I've ever encountered. He, he taught me how to see things in an arrow. Like if there was a disturbance in the arrow coming out of the bow, he could explain to me, which was funny because his English was not that good. Back like talking then. to Arnold. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he's a, he's a Russian. He was a, if I understood this right, he was a Russian Olympic equipment coach and that was his job there. And he, he, he was and, and Butch who was always shooting with me, came a lot with me to PSC. He, he never really kind of connected with them like I did, but I could start to see after he would explain things, how, how the string was reacting with the bow and arrow combination when we changed different things or how we changed something in my form, even slightly that would make an arrow um, leave the bow um, just a little bit differently, and I could see that really, really well. So technically, I, I mean, I, and I could transfer a lot of that over to a compound. Um, technically, I could see I learned a lot from him. And then there was uh, Strickland, Tim Strickland, who has um, – I don't know how much he does of coaching anymore, but I know he, he um, has that, those Helix broadheads. That's yep. kind of his gig. He makes those. Um, he, he had the mental game, and he – I, I was fortunate enough that he got a hold of me when I was young um, and, and explained to me the, the importance of how, how the mental game works. And so I learned everything mentally from him. And, I mean, boy, with, without that in place, I mean, the fundamentals you need, obviously, without, without that mental game being put together, whether you're a bow hunter or whether you're shooting the Olympic Games or an ASA, if, if, if you don't have the understanding of, of how to execute a shot properly and be able to focus on what you need to do, which is hard to understand for me. Like I jump around all over the place with ADHD. It's ridiculous. But with archery, I can focus on it very, especially for short time periods, like executing a shot with an arrow, no matter how, how I shoot in practice, exactly the same as how I shoot in tournaments. I don't, if anything, maybe even improve a little bit in tournaments when you put me under pressure, because for me to motivate me, you have to give me, Personally, I have to have a motivation to want to do something like to shoot an arrow. I, I, I live for that pressure. If I don't have pressure on me, like indoors is really a difficult thing for me to do because I just to stand there for 60 arrows and shoot them at three little spots. I mean, shoot me in the head. I just don't, not something I'm <laughs> overly excited about, but you know, spending 40 days to get an opportunity at an animal and knowing that it may be my only opportunity at an animal, whether that's an elk or a white tail or whatever, that man, holy cow, do I, that, that gets my adrenaline pumping. And that, that is what I do it for personally. So you, you kind of got to, like you said, you, you, you got to find the guys and gals or whatever that have those little things that you're needing to improve on and kind of seek them out because you're right. There is no one person in my, my opinion that, that is great at everything when it comes to, to shooting a bow. And I'm sure it's like that with other disciplines too. Gotcha. No, I would agree. Um, it's, I mean, I'm not a MMA expert, but it seems like, you know, you're going to have a boxing coach or wrestling coach or whatever coach to be totally well-rounded. Um, you know, so there's multiple different coaches for multiple different things. Seems like the same way with, with archery. Um, and I didn't obviously shoot nearly at a level where you did, but, uh, um, there was a one specific person that that kind of taught you know i preach it to frank all the time if you're shooting bad dude put the freaking bow down don't keep shooting regroup come back the next day you know get your middle game back together don't ingrain things in your brain and if you make a bad shot um you know whether it be in an animal or a target you're only as good as your last arrow and your last arrow is shitty you need to make sure that you can mentally regroup uh, shrug it off and and move on and not be thinking about that last shot and I, and I had a great you know person that helped me that with that and and it's carried through forever I mean even now I just don't let it affect me like it, it might affect some people which been huge and it's hard to find a coach that can I mean he's got to understand you as a person I believe like almost a shrink yep. to be able to get you through that um so yeah I um it uh Archery is a unique. Your subconscious is a son of a bitch. I tell you what, um, archery is a unique game for sure. <laughs> well, and I think you're right too. In, in 
And I, the one thing I would say to someone, if, if you're seeking out help from somebody, I can't, I, I could not encourage someone enough to make sure that that person, um, it has excelled in what it is that they're trying to teach you because I completely disagree. Maybe with football, it's different in some other sports where, you know, a, there, there can be great coaches that can coach well, but couldn't play themselves. Maybe that's possible. But when it comes to archery, I have yet to see that at all. Like if, 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 if somebody's trying to teach you something and has never done it before with a bow, and I don't mean specifically like, oh, find somebody that shot 400 inch elk because they never have access to a four inch elk specifically shooting an arrow if if they've never won anything before in their entire life then they are not somebody that i would even remotely ask for help with (laughs) unless it's like hey my my string came off my bow or i can't tie my knocking loop on but to ask um to, to seek advice from somebody i would find somebody that's done it um and has done very well with whatever it is that they're looking for to improve upon yeah, no, and I would agree with that too. Um, you know, and there's a certain like, I mean, good example. I've just won a bunch of local stuff and you know some sectional stuff. So there's a level that I'm, uh, get, you know, I'm good at hunting the middle thing. You know, I, but you know, for guys that once they're like going to national ASA IBO shoot shooting at a high level, um, you've kind of shit can my knowledge base. I can still teach you to shoot, but if you're asking me. Well, I was doing this and we were on target that, yeah, fuck, I don't know, man. You're going to have to ask somebody that shot it. Like, I can't mentally tell you how it's going to be. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I can't tell you because I, I haven't been there. Uh, and I don't, I agree with you 100% because once you hit kind of, um, you know, you'll kind of peak out or plateau of certain coaches. And I, I mean, the, the yeah. guy that taught me the middle game, I, I had far passed him as far as my shooting ability. But he was still yep. the entire time able to keep my head together. Um, didn't yep. have anything to do with shooting. I'd pa- you know I had moved on and, and to found you know better coaches. But mentally, he was able to help me a lot because he just knew me as a person and, and be able to help me keep my shit together. Um, now, what are they on the Olympic level? Like, what? Um, I mean, how much is that done at the Olympic Training Center and things like that, or is that done mostly? Um, you know, obviously it's your, your house, local range, and then you just kind of show up at the training center right before you go. Yep. That's pretty much what it is. Uh, they're, they're, the training centers, I mean, they're great facilities. I'm thankful for having them by all means, but like the, the people that are in that system, same kind of deal. They've, they've never done it before. None of us who are Olympians are out there coaching other Olympians. Uh, um, and, and part of it is, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it, like for me, Specifically, it would be a financial thing. Like, I there's no money there to, to pay your bills with <laughs> to coach an Olympic team. Like, we we are the only country, I believe, or at the time, we're the only country that are not we're not funded by the government. So there's no one paying the bills for coaches out there um, to to help people. So and there's no no system really that's in place that um, it, it seemed like when I went to the Olympic Training Center or any of the camps we were mostly there for the most part for them to study us and try to come up with something that was similar with all of us. And I don't think it was ever successfully done. Um, you know, the, the, the shot styles of everybody is a little bit different because most of us kind of figured it out kind of on our own and then found those people that really helped in those little specific areas. Like you were mentioning before, like how someone, a really good coach knows when you've gotten to the point where like, Hey, I can't help you anymore with the level that you're at. That's what my, the first two people that taught me how to shoot basically speed and Shirley McCullough from Pennsylvania. They were older couple, um, phenomenal, uh, people. And I got to a level where they Hey, we, we need to seek out somebody else. And maybe this Tim Strickland guy is it because we can't, we can't help you anymore. We've never had anyone shoot that good locally. And so, you know, they were really good at handing me off like that to somebody else that would had a higher level of, of learning um, they could teach. Gotcha. No, that's cool. Well, man, we're hitting, we're getting ready to peak on an hour here, man. We should probably um, get off the horn with you and get back on at some other point. If people want to kind of find out, you know, what you're doing and things like that, where, where can they look you up at? Um, so my, I've got a website, rodwhite.com. Um, and that one is, uh, on, I think the only thing I really have on that right now is just, I had a 60 day elk training class, which is, you know, not, I'm not a physical, um, what do you call it? Uh, 
boy, I'm not a trainer or certified trainer or anything. It's just had kind of a course on there, what I did to get ready for elk season um, and just kind of help people overall. And that course, I think it should be shut down by now, but we'll have a, obviously I'll have another entry for that next year. And then I'll start putting some more hunting stuff on there. But the best resource by far is to go to my uh, Facebook page and there's a business page and there's my personal page and the business page is the one to go to. Um, I think you call it a business page or fan page or whatever it is. And it's Rod White. And I think it's actually Facebook forward slash Rod White Olympic bow hunter. I think gotcha. that'd be the best place to go. And you'll see a lot of whitetail stuff on there, but I kind of put things up as, as the, as the season progresses. Like we know we're getting close to elk season, kind of like you guys, certainly I don't have the degree of level of expertise that you guys do when it comes to out West, but you know, I, I post some stuff about, Hey, here's my gear is what I'm using. Um, here's something to think about when it comes to X, Y, Z, whatever that is. Um, just kind of more timely, relevant, bits of information and at, over the course of the next year at that rodwhite.com you'll see more kind of mini courses come up that'll that'll be really helpful to people i think gotcha well no that's that's cool frank you got anything else um no i'm just I'm, thanks for coming on rod i i've kind of been excited to listen to your take on things and um you definitely not a, not a lot of people know your name as well as they, they probably used to just um but uh, Aaron talks great things about you and I'm glad that you came on and it's always interesting to hear kind of everyone's story and kind of how, how you got into, into the Olympic thing. And I was, that's something I was super interested in. Thanks for, thanks for well, coming cool. on, I, man. No problem. I enjoy talking to you guys and I'm sure we could go on for hours and hours about a gazillion different things. So that's the age gap. Rod, you're born in 77, <laughs> right? Yep. Yeah, me too. See, we're we're old, Frank. That's that's a problem, right there. <laughs> are you are you rocking a flat bill and a mullet, Rod? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> uh, yeah. Do you bend the brim of your hat, or do you wear it flat? You gotta bend it. I don't know what <laughs> Frank, the deal is. I'm not rocking. I'm not rocking the flat bill either, though. No, I'm just telling you, okay. age, you got your ass beat when I was a kid if you didn't bend the shit out of that brim. <laughs> that's right. We can be friends then, Frank. All sure. right. Yeah. As long as you're not wearing skinny jeans either. That's another. No. No skinny jeans. No to the skinny not. jeans. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, cool, man. Well, yeah, thanks for coming on. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely have to try and get back, get you back on here, you know, once a month or so and shoot the shit about something. Yeah. Talk about bow yeah, tuning or sure. something. Love to do something like that with you guys. You guys rock it. Cool. Thanks, man. Cool. All right, man. We'll take it easy and good luck out there. All right. Thanks. Yep. Bye-bye. Yeah.